This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome back, everybody, to yet another episode of the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we have another great episode for you guys. Today, we have uh, Tom James from Indiana on the line. Tom is a uh, land manager, deer hunter, real estate professional. Uh, he's been on the management advantage. You've probably seen him with Whitetail Properties. He's now with Base Camp Country Real Estate. This guy is a deer nut just like the rest of us and a very knowledgeable one at that. A couple of the high-level points we cover on this episode involved, you know, habitat with a weekend schedule. Most of us work during the week and can get out on the weekends. We talk a lot about that. We talk about the Ferminator, which is a food plot implement that Tom invented. Uh, we talk about a 17-acre whitetail haven, which was a crop field that Tom turned strictly into deer habitat. Took out of corn and beans and planted trees and did the whole thing right. We talk a lot about that. So tune in, guys. We have a great episode here with Tom. This is actually part one we uh, had such a good time with him, we, we did a part two episode following this. So I hope you guys can uh, tune into this one. Thank you so much for coming back and listening. It is a really great show. For anybody who's new to the Habitat Podcast, all of our episodes and hats and gear and everything you want to know about us, our new land plan services, all that is up at HabitatPodcast.com. You can find us there, and uh, you know if you like what we're doing, tell us. Leave us a review on uh, Apple iTunes or Spotify or wherever you hear your podcast at. 
know, we got a bunch of YouTube videos coming out again this spring and summer, so be sure to follow along there. But one thing I wanted to highlight is a new service we're offering called our Land Plans, Habitat Podcast Land Plans. We offer two different types of services. One is a digital land plan where we discuss with you uh, via phone, Zoom, video conference, FaceTime, whatever it takes to get us a good look at your property and help you form a plan for your habitat and hunting. And the second option we offer, which is a boots on the ground or what I like to call a land tour land plan, is where we would actually come out and visit your property, spend the day with you, and uh, help you achieve your goals that way. So both of these can be um, you know, read about more at habitatpodcast.com slash landplans. You know, head on over there, check it out, give us a thought and what you think, and, um, you know, we're going to be offering a few of those this year, so we appreciate your feedback. Next, I want to talk about 5-2 Outdoors. They're one of our partners of the podcast here, and Dale Wallace over there, I talked to him today, and he is running out of deer blinds at the 2019 price. So what that means is he had a bunch of them coming into 2020. Lazy Man Blinds raised their prices in 2020 due to their demand and success and and high-quality new products they're coming out with. But Dale still has 2019 inventory. You can find this inventory and pricing, the 2019 price, at 52outdoors.com. That's F-I-V-E, the number two, outdoors.com. Also, he is on Facebook and Instagram as well. Be sure to reach out to Dale and tell him the Habitat Podcast sent you. Now, before we get into the show here, I want to touch on one quick review we had on our Habitat Podcast iTunes account from Larson68. Fellas, just want to tell you guys thanks. I am in my mid-30s and love to manage my habitat. My dad and I have a family farm of 60 acres. I am fourth generation to own it. I have been in my house with my wife and three kids due to the virus working on schoolwork with them, and doing a lot of painting. Oh, I hear you there, buddy. I have been listening to you guys on podcasts while I'm painting, and you guys help take my mind off all the craziness going on. I'm hooked. Thanks again. Larson68, thank you so much. Uh, please find me online, and I will get you a free Habitat Podcast decal for that awesome five-star review. And that goes for everybody else. If you guys are loving what you're hearing, Find us online, leave us a review, and uh, let me know. I will get you a Habitat Podcast decal. I want to thank the rest of our sponsors for the podcast. We have Killer Food Plots, Packer Max Cultipackers, HuntWise Hunting App, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, 5-2 Outdoors, The Habitat Hook, and Morse Nursery. All right, guys, before we get into it with Tom James, let's hear about our weekly species review with Charlie Morse at Morse Nurseries, and we will roll right into the show. Thank you again for listening. Hello, this is Charlie Morse from Morse Nursery, and today I'd like to talk a little bit about hybrid oaks. They're definitely one of our um, most popular trees that we grow and sell. And hybrid white oaks are able to Uh, produce acorns at very young ages, uh, four to eight years from a seedling. Uh, In some cases, we have older oaks that you can start with, and it won't take that long. But we have almost a misery of choice for hybrid oaks. We help you match them up based on your soil type, if it's clay or sandy, wet or dry. And um, uh, these are 
available still this spring. Uh, you can look uh, the hybrid oak uh, varieties up at morsenursery.com. Welcome back, everybody. We have our uh, trusty co-host on the line, Brian Hallbly. How you doing, Brian? Doing great, Jared. Nice to talk to some other people that aren't in my house for the last two weeks. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Coronavirus is uh, out and about, and we have uh, our special guest tonight, Mr. Tom James. How you doing tonight, Tom? I'm great, guys. Thank you very much for having me on. Hey, no problem. No problem. Glad you could join us. I know uh got some strange times in our country right now, but you're out there lighting the world on fire, pun intended. And, well, uh, that's, that's <laughs> true, yeah. Well, we don't uh, like to start this out. Let's just hear a little bit about, you know, what you've been up to, who you are, uh, you know, where you're from, that whole type of thing, if you don't mind getting into it for us. Sure. I, I didn't mean to talk over you there a second ago, but um, – I'm actually the national sales manager currently for Basecamp Country Real Estate, which is the sister company for Basecamp Leasing. And um, I, my background goes quite a bit farther back into this, uh, the, I guess, the outdoor industry, so I can give you guys a quick recap. Sure. Um, out of, out of uh, I was a Purdue guy. I lived growing up in Indiana my whole life. Um, avid hunter. Grew up as a young kid trapping and squirrel hunting and small game hunting like a lot of guys did. And Got into deer hunting and archery um, in my my teenage years and and early into high school and college. So uh, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but I'm 53 years old. So I graduated high school in '84. Um, but my my folks moved out to the country when I was about I don't know sixth or seventh grade, maybe fifth or sixth grade, and it, it just re, un, you know opened up a whole new world to me. I was able to um, leave the house in the morning. Uh, obviously when I wasn't in school, well, even before, while I was in school, I was running trap lines for muskrats and mink and raccoons and things in the morning. Um, but my folks, that was back in the seventies, you know, when I was in, in that young exploratory age and my mom would let me be gone all day, you know, and come back in at dinner time at dark and not worry about me. So things were different back then. And I got to know a lot of the local farmers and they let me explore their, woodlots and ditch lines and creeks and I had permission to go here and there and small game hunt and trap and it was just a really cool time to cut my teeth in the outdoors um but it was really when I was a little bit older and got in got bit by the the bow hunting bug for whitetails that it really started to take off for me and um I I I shot my first whitetail with a a bow that was lent to me by my 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 girlfriend's brother, it was an old Indian archery bow, and I can remember I was in college and couldn't afford anything, and, and he let me borrow the spare bow and, like, three or four or five mismatched arrows at different lengths and diameters and weights, and it was a pathetic sight, but I could, and I was shooting a finger tab, but I could hit a, a paper plate consistently at 30 yards, you know, and um, one one day... I can remember this just like it was yesterday uh, in, in Carmel, Indiana, which is Hamilton County. If, I, if anybody's listening and they, they know where that's at, it's a highly developed area now and some very upper-end homes and, and shopping and, and uh, attractions and things like that. But sort of the suburban area up there, there was some pocket woodlots that were holding some whitetails. And, and um, my, my buddy, my, well, he was my, my girlfriend's brother, 
um, had gotten permission from a couple spots, but I, I don't want to bog you down with too many details, but I can remember going in that morning with a bow in my hand and four arrows in the other with no quiver and um, walking into a woodlot in the dark and climbing up a tree and straddling a limb. Um, it's as silly as that sounds. I, I had a, a large, you know, 12 inch diameter limb and my, my legs were hanging over either side of it. And I stuck the arrows up in a, a couple branches over my head and knocked an arrow. And as luck would have it, a, a six point year and a half old buck walked by within 30 yards in the, in the edge of the cornfield that morning. And I was able to shoot it. And, um, from that moment on, I was completely hooked by, by the whitetail bug and, and, um, quickly developed that, that interest level from, um, the, the bow hunting aspect and just the fascination with the deer itself, the animal itself into all aspects of whitetails. And it wasn't long thereafter. I was very proficient with the bow. I could buy my own equipment and, and honed my skills and, and practice religiously. But it, um, it transcended into from an interest to a passion to to something that I wanted to study in college too, and I remember entering college at Purdue as a uh, a pre veterinary medicine wannabe, uh, but I quickly changed that to wildlife management, and wildlife biology, and so for the first half of my career at Purdue, I was studying wildlife classes, um, and and halfway into my sophomore year, our Program director Fred Montag had a reality, uh, I guess a real. Um, let's get realistic with the current job market, the forecast for the future for you people because you're young people and you're investing in a career and an education. Um, and it, it, it really, well, I'll tell you what he told us first, and I'll tell you how it re- how it affected me. But he said. Of the of the people that are in here right now, 25% of you can expect to land a job in this field as a wildlife management or wildlife biologist, wildlife manager, excuse me. And those of you that do, you will probably earn around $12,000 a year starting out. And wow. it really just it just deflated me so badly um, just because here I was. I wasn't expecting to make a lot of money out of, out of school, but just knowing what I was incurring some student debt, and and um, it was just not what a guy wanted to hear at my age, you know. And, yeah. and the, pro- the the prospects were really, really low. Hindsight being twenty twenty, I wish I would have stuck stuck it out, but I but I didn't. I I decided to um, shift my my focus a little bit, and I and I took up landscape architecture as a as a major, and but I continued to take wildlife classes, and and through through that experience, um, I think it really helped build the the resources that I have at my availability now on design and, and, and sort of thinking and being creative. That that really helped me hone those skills. Um, but when I left Purdue, I immediately started my own business of design and installation and maintenance uh, of landscaping um, with, with that interest of wildlife completely hanging over my head and, and, and still consuming a lot of my daily thoughts. But I ran a company for 25 years in Indianapolis where we, where I designed, you know, and drew, drew drawings and we, we installed new landscapings on homes and apartment communities and developments and entryways. And um, I did a lot of seating 
um, you know, with tractors and implements through that time and hydro seeding and regular seeding, seed and straw and fertilizer and sod. We did a lot of that work. And, and then that, we had a crew or two or several that would maintain the properties too. Um, so that was really a, a big part of my 20s and early 30s was, was all that um, day-to-day landscaping from daylight to dark. And um, fortunately, through that process, I was able to, to afford to buy my first piece of property. Uh, and I know I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm trying to give you guys a little bit of the, the background that led me to where it should start branching off into the conversation a little bit more. Oh, you're doing great. Yeah. So how old were you um, when you bought that new that first piece of property, and, and what was that first piece like? Yeah, um, I I can remember. So this was way before, um, you know, recreational property sales were a big thing. Uh, a, a person had to really look through newspaper ads or, or for sale by owners and things like that. And I remember seeing this like a one-quarter-inch tall ad in the Sunday newspaper um, and that I can I can almost recite it verbatim. It said 57.4 acres, uh, deer and turkey galore, one-acre spring-fed pond, and it was $57,000, and we'll consider a contract. Oh, baby. And, um, yeah, this was on a, uh, a Sunday morning, and I called the phone number, and it was actually a realtor that had it for sale, and, it, and I can tell the guy's name right now, but I, um, I don't know if it's appropriate or not, but he um he was in a little niche back at that time where he was sort of uh he was considered the land man in the Indianapolis area and um i asked him i said i'm so sorry to bother you on a sunday but is there any chance that i could go look at this property and he was gracious gracious enough to tell me how to get there and explain the details and man i drove out there the, the minute i hung up the phone with him i drove out there and by the way this was in a really good county in West Central Indiana, known um, known for good hunting, and uh, I had been fortunate enough to have been hunting a farm out in that same area by permission from a family friend. So I I had some experience with with the area, and I knew that's where I wanted to be. And um, I walked it, walked that farm, and I remember coming. It was basically just a, a 57 acre square wooded tract up on a hill, surrounded by more adjoining woods okay and i as i was as i was coming off the hill that day i passed other people that were walking up the lane to look at it as well and i (laughs) um i guess i'm kind of reactionary i I, i'm like strike while the iron is hot kind of a person so (laughs) the minute i got back down the hill and i got in my vehicle i i called him back and i said what do i have to do to take to take this off the market today to tie it up. And he said, well, if you, if you're coming back into Indianapolis, if you'll meet me, um, somewhere convenient for you. And if you write me a thousand dollar earnest money check, it'll, it'll go pending today. And that's exactly what I did. I, uh, wow. I, I saw the ad, walked it and put money down on it to tie it up within about a six or eight hour period that same day. And, um, Thank God I did. I think it was meant to be because it's it's been such a source of joy and satisfaction and um, just solitude for me over the years since then. 
And I've really, really loved the farm. And we've added to it since. Um, Not long ago, we added another 62 and a half acres that adjoins it on two sides. So we're up to about 120 acres now. Very nice. What what a story. How how many properties did you walk before this one came for sale? Uh, You know, just looking at it, looking at buying, uh, you know, getting your feet wet in the market. I'll tell you what, back then it was just because I wanted to be in such a specific area. Yeah, you kind of knew. Yeah, I really knew. And and there wasn't – I mean, you were lucky if you saw an ad in the newspaper that it was even to the county that you were looking for. So back then there was just – it was just totally blind luck being in the right spot at the right time and seeing the right publication or the right for sale ad, you know, in in a bait store or or a gas station. And, and honestly, there was just back, it was newspaper ads. There, there really was nothing back then that, that promoted and sold recreational land. So there was a little section in the newspaper I can remember. I think it was just said farms and acreage was the column that it was in. And I watched that for weeks and weeks. Um, but it, that was the first one I walked. I really got to say this because it was the first one that popped up in the county and in the area that I was looking at, at within a couple of years' time of just watching the newspaper ads. That's awesome. And how long have you owned that property now? Oh, my gosh. Um, let's see. The way that I always try to figure this out is my daughter, my oldest daughter, Morgan, was, was two years old, and she's 27 now, so 25 years ago. Wow. I got cool. that. Yeah. So, Tom, when did you start doing the habitat work on that farm after you bought it? Did you hunt it for a while and kind of get an idea of the way the deer were moving, or what was your plan for that? Yeah, good question. Um, so because of my background with landscaping and seeding and and uh, having some knowledge about how to, work, how to work soil and put seed in the ground and grow, uh, back then, you guys, the Whitetail Institute, had really just just come out with their imperial whitetail clover. And um, I recall they even had some small ads in the newspapers that you could send off for a free sample kit for a certain amount of clover that would plant a, heck, I think it was like a 10 by 10 or a 20 by 20 area just to see if it was, it was something that you were interested in. And um, the, the property had had been logged probably 15 to 20 years prior. So there were some remnant log roads that wound up through the, through the hills and the ridges up in there. But, and there were two distinct, I'll call them small, they were probably a quarter acre or less, areas that were at one time you could tell. Now now knowing what I know, they were a, they were old log, log decks. But back then I, I just knew that there was some sort of an opening. But they had um, thick, brush and some small saplings starting to grow back up in there. And um, so I, I, I kicked the tractor in there that I that I did my landscaping work with with the bush hog on it and mowed off the best I could. And then the only other thing that I had at the time that that we did preparation work for finish grading was a, a grader box with some scare fire teeth in it, you know. So I dragged that those sites off with a, with an old grader box with teeth and uh, raked the roots out and took the hatchet and an axe and chainsaw and cut everything that popped up out of the ground as I dragged the box across there and 
and essentially with just a small tractor and some rudimentary implements, I was able to clear off a couple great spots that were my early attempts at food plots. Um, I'll be honest with you, I was still way young in my curve of learning how to figure out whitetail bucks, specifically older bucks, and um, set up for them. I just knew that if I found a great trail leading to food and I could hunt the right wind on it, I could, um, you know, put myself in a position, and if I spent enough time at it, I'd hopefully intercept some deer, and I did. But I was always wanting to do better. I was always one of those kind of people that I, I, I harvested a few small, you know, back then, a year and a half, old buck was any deer with antlers on it was was a tremendous success especially with a bow but after you you shot two or three or four of those then you wanted the next level and a two and a half year old buck i remember that was just like you know the holy grail you hit you kill a a two-year-old and you really felt like you did something but (laughs) and, and that's the truth i mean there's so many people that didn't understand that age what age does and and it was way before that we felt like you could that you could make a difference. But the um, the great thing with the way that I that coincided with me buying my property and and my mindset and my my appetite for wanting to learn and do better was the um, it perfectly coincided with the QDMA coming on to the scene and education and people sharing stories and I, I read everything I could get my hands on. And, and, you know, there were books back then by, uh, several different authors that I remember moon phase books and Don Higgins wrote a great book well, a long time ago. And I, I forget the, the, the gentleman's name now that, that came, that wrote the book about that had the moon phase, but, uh, uh, I'm showing my age and my, my lack of memory, but I wrote, I read everything that I could get my hands on and, um, was trying to apply those things on a personal level with how they fit where I was at and, and what I was doing. But I'll tell you guys this. I mean, it was, I just really understood growing plants and seed and implementing and working the soil properly. And I just felt like I was falling short with my ability to do, even though they were small and really insignificant food plots in the grand scheme of things back then, I felt like there was, there was a much better way to do it, and and the, the tools that we had available to us back then just kind of paled in comparison to what was available to large-scale farmers. You know, the, the larger implements were so much more efficient and uh, more robust and well-built and would do a much better job. Heck, even some of the upper-end landscaping equipment, the, the large drills and, and preparators and um, oh, the Harley rakes and things like that that were hydraulically driven and things like that that prep soil for even turf seeding were much more advanced than what us guys that were trying to do food plots on the weekends were were uh, able to get our hands on. Um, right about that time, though, if I if I may, was the the introduction of the plot master, and I remember the first time I saw an ad for the plot master. I thought, well, finally there's an idea of, of somebody coming out something with something specific to this niche, but their their marketing strategy at the time was one pass does it all. You know, and here's a piece of equipment that had 
a set, a set of um, sweep harrows, which is basically like a little crow foot on a spring that's supposed to bust the ground open, and there was some disc behind it, and then there was a electric spinning feeder that dropped through a chute, and there was a little, a small steel roller with even a uh, a drag, like a screen drag behind it, and I was intrigued by the, the idea of finally something that was all on one implement that could do what we were wanting to do, but I was very skeptical of the of the claim that you could do this in one pass because of, again, I'm not trying to sound arrogant by any means, but I just know from running discs and grader boxes and things that I ran through the years that I was working soil and doing seed preparation for, for turf grass, I just, I knew it, it, it was a pretty intensive operation. Sure. Um, and I, I must say that I respected the idea to, of that, but I, I was also very, very skeptical that, that it would live up to its claim. So walk us through uh, the next step in, in the process for your search to find something better. What, what did you start to look at? What did you come up with? Okay, so I'll, I'll get a little bit personal with you guys here, too. Uh, there's some, some health things that I went through at the time that happened to coincide about this exact same time. And um, Neil and Craig Doherty wrote a book, and it was, it was Grow Em Right. It was, they, they came out with, with this book that, in my opinion, was the very first um, almost like a, a Bible or a step-by-step guide for people that wanted to really, truly, you know, do the ultra management of their properties for white-tailed deer and for better deer and deer hunting. And um, they, in, in the book, they advertised that they they had this this uh, this farm in, in upstate New York, 500 acres, and that they were doing. During the, the warmer months, they were doing weekend tours where you could go up on a Saturday, and I think for 50 bucks you could take part of this, this vast tour of their entire property, and they would show you all the different food plots and the strategies and the equipment and the, and the mindset of why they did this here and, and what they were using and, and the reasons behind these specific forages that they were choosing. And I, would, I was just completely um, – I was completely enthralled by that. Man, finally there's something that I can stick my teeth into that I'm not putting bits and pieces together from different sources. This is all right here together in one book. Um, and the reason I said I was, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about my health is because I was, it was discovered that I had a, um, I required a pretty serious surgery on my spinal cord at the time. And right about the time my wife bought me that book, um, while I was in recovery, and I went through this pretty major surgery, and I was on my back for several weeks, and I I read I read that book front to, front to back, I think probably a couple times, and I just I made a promise to myself as soon as I was well enough and able to get up and go, I was going to book a tour and go up to North Country Whitetails and 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 go through this property, and and check out everything these guys were doing up there, and that's exactly what I did. Um, I remember at the time that they they showed a lot of their uh, tractors and some of their bigger discs, field discs, and maybe even some um, 
uh, uh, doggone it, the word has escaped me, be, uh, field cultivators, excuse me, just different large pieces of equipment they were, that they were using on their food plots. But then they had an image of the plot master in there, and it was behind an ATV, and there again was that image of that machine that I thought, wow, that's, you know, pretty cool piece. I'm going to have to talk to him about that when I go up there. So a friend of mine and I booked the trip, went up there, and spent the day with the guys and went on this grand tour. And at the very end of the day, we were – they they ended their, their trip back at the machine shed and they had their implements parked around and they had their tractors and their sprayers and their, their fertilizer spreaders and things all sitting out. And when it was all said and done and everybody shook hands and said their goodbyes and was walking off their different ways, I walked up to Craig Doherty and I said, hey, if you don't mind me asking, I got to know, I, I, I noticed that you had a, a plot master in your book and I just wanted to know what you felt about it personally. And maybe I'm going too far by saying this, but Craig took me to the side and he walked me around uh, next to the barn and it was parked under a little lean-to. And he said, well, there it is. And, you know, we've used it and it, it just, it, it's not really holding up uh, to what we had, a, a, you know, our expectation level. Um, right. We broke a couple pieces on it and it's, it's, it's not, it's not been as robust as we thought it might've been. And so it's been sitting there for quite some time. And honestly, guys, from that that moment when I left that hill in New York, this was back in 2002 or 2003. Um, my, my the concept that I wanted to develop for myself was I needed to come up with a real cast iron set of cold packers to be able to use for food plots, and. Um, that was drilled into my head, and I, I, I had I had learned that and ascertained that when you're when you're dealing with small seeds and preparing a seed bed to get small seeds to be successful, uh, alfalfa, clover, chicory, you know, you name some of the smaller seeds that need to be within the top quarter inch of, or so of soil. Colda packer is really really a critical piece of equipment. Um, if you're digging or or you're rototilling ground, your soil gets loose and fluffy. You're, you're scattering seed in that loose, fluffy ground, and a, a, a great majority of the seed gets planted too deeply, and those seeds die trying to get out of the soil. I, I learned that. I understood that. Um, but there really, other than stumbling across an old farmer's cul-de-packer somewhere in a field, um, you know, or, or out, of, out of use in a, in a fence row somewhere, they, they just weren't around. You couldn't buy one. So that was really the genesis of, of – taking everything that I just learned, um, everything that I had from my past experiences, and on the drive home, I guess you could say the light bulb came on, and I thought, why, why can't I be the guy that brings a, a colder packer to the food plot industry, this new, newly established food plot industry? And um, I'll just say that was the, the light bulb came on, and from that point on, it was just, Several months later, not many, not much time at all, that the original Furminator um, prototype was developed, and it wow. went obviously it went it went from just a colder packer to a true a true implement that had had everything that I felt like it needed, but also built as robustly as a guy would ever want. It was built like a tank, and it had the steel, it had the weight. 
we did I did a special design of shortening the gap between disc blades from the standard seven and a half inches that was industry standard and had custom castings made that were six inches apart to get you a better cut um, between disc blades and more thoroughly be able to roll the soil with less passes. So why, why does that work better with the uh, shorter distance? Well, if you think about it, if you're running discs through the soil seven and a half inches or eight inches apart, especially when you're going into a virgin site and working sod or some material that may not have been worked uh, in, in, you know, a year or two or several or ever, you know, for that matter, um, it just requires, because you're cutting those those sections of soil into finer strips, when you go back over it the second time, even at a different angle, you, you have now um, reduced that fats and that material to a smaller a smaller chunk, if that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. More cuts per pass. That's a great way to say it. So um, I can honestly say that the Terminator was the, the first piece of, in, of uh, the first implement that came out with the narrower disc spacing, and we were uh, we were able to to put a lot of unit weight or frame weight with the three inch square tubing and thick wall steel and half inch plate steel and real true heavy carbon steel disc blades, eighteen inches notched and and the iron components on the spacers and there's a ton. I mean, there's I, I say ton. You know, uh, just for example, a six foot terminator. Weighed, weighed close to 2,000 pounds. Oh, and wow. um, when, when you apply that kind of weight to the soil through a set of sharp blades, guess what? You are going to work some ground. Absolutely. And you're going to cut it up cut it up. And, and the beauty about the, the, the design was that you could, uh, between disc angle adjustments and also the, the top pitch of your three-point top link, you could apply, you could lean the unit more forward to apply more disc weight into the soil, or you could lean it more farther back to let the colder packers have more of the transfer of the weight. So any any range of adjustments in between, it really allowed you to go into it aggressively work a site with super extreme disc angles of 20 degrees with a lot of forward weight. The second or third pass, you could lean it back a little bit. You could you could uh, bring moderate your angles back to maybe a 10 or 15 degree setting. And now you've got some of the colder packer, excuse me, some of the weight transferred to the colder packers were, were there now, uh, breaking down and crushing in, uh, the clods and of the soil that your your blades are breaking apart. And then maybe on a final pass, again, relative to what you're working with, this I'm talking about if you were going in and working a brand new site, um, if you were if, if on that third pass, if you wanted a second or third pass for that matter, if you wanted to plant soybeans, you just drop seed into the loose soil and, and let the disc blade throw some soil over it, and, and the colder packers worked it in. If you were wanting to plant the small seeds that we were talking about a few moments ago, clover, alfalfa, chicory, some of the, um, you know, the uh, brassicas and small cereal grains for fall planting, you could run the colder packer over the field and then do a final pass with the disc blades completely up out of the soil and drop seed on a pre-firmed seed bed without any other soil disturbance and keep them right there on the surface, and, and, and the iron wheels are just rolling them right into that firm seed bed. So you really have the option of just doing multiple, um, I guess you would say, uh, approaches to applying seed to the soil, whether it be into the loose soil packed in 
um, or on the surface. And, and, and it really, I think it, it, it made a huge difference in the industry as far as, as far as, um, people's success rates of being able to, to grow food plots and, and be successful with them. Now, are you still using the same thing today? Is how, how different is the new one from the original prototype? That's a good question. Uh, it actually went through three design changes from, there was a, a the original Ferminator, um, the, Generation two, and then the, and we really didn't call it that. It was just the Ferminator. But uh, the third design revision was the Ferminator G three, which stood for Generation three, of course. And and quite frankly, it's almost identically the same today as it was back in, my goodness, probably two thousand and five or two thousand and six. Okay. Um, that third revision was just me continuing to tweak little nuances that I felt could make it slightly better. Um, we lowered the profile. The seed box sat down lower inside the frame. Um, there there were uh, there was at one time an exterior chain and sprocket system that you engaged to, to begin to uh, drop your seed that was driven off of, of the, a gear that was attached to the cultipacker shaft. But between the second generation model to the final. I designed it in inside the frame so that everything was encapsulated inside of a steel frame so that there's no exposed sprockets or chains. That's awesome. And you actually just open a trap door that accesses the engagement knob that allows you to start dropping seeds. So it really slicked it down. It made it look really cool. We uh, There were some angles that were incorporated into it, and dropping that seed box, it just gave it a really cool... Uh, tank, heavy, heavy, well-built piece of equipment look, you know, and it just, to this day, it's virtually the same as it was. Now, there's a big movement. Everybody's trying to go towards no-till nowadays, Tom. What are, what are your thoughts on the Ferminator versus all the true no-till systems today? Well, I'll tell you, it's it's nothing new. Uh, the, the debate was raging back then, you know, and it's, I think, anytime somebody comes out with um, – Anybody that gets some some share of uh, attention in, in the food plot industry or the, or the habitat industry, that that suddenly it's all of a sudden it's the newest, greatest, latest thing to do. Um, I completely respect the no-till philosophy, um, but I will tell you this: there's pros and cons to both. And right. when you think about soil disturbance, um, any time that you conventionally work the ground, you will be uh, initiating new unwanted seeds to germinate and you're also risking losing soil moisture by evaporation, transpiration, sunlight, warming the soil and and coming off the top. So th- those are the givens, right? And those are the things that are disadvantageous when you are conventionally working the ground with the disc. When you are no-tilling in, you can leave a, a vegetative thatch or mulching on top of the soil and then you are knifing and dropping seed within a, a slit that obviously doesn't allow the competition from the weed seed response to the disturbance. Um, but you're also not able to incorporate your lime and fertilizer into the root zone as you would if you were conventionally working the soil. Uh, you're allowing, you're, you're actually anticipating on leaching and, and rainfall to work the nutrients down into the soil and secondarily, you're not able to incorporate that organic material that 
the residue that the crop tax from the previous year, you're relying on normal decay and leaching to take that into the root zone as well. Whereas conventional tillage, where applicable, now I'm not saying this is for everybody because there's pros and cons, but if you apply fertilizer and lime to the surface of your crop field and and you run a disc through there and, and you're also cutting your bean stubble or your last year's clover residue or your your corn stalks and stubble into the ground, you are immediately putting that organic matter into the root zone, allowing it to decay and become nutrients that are easily accessible by that, that year's crop. Um, sure. So here's my, here's my input. If you are on erodible soils, if you have an issue with uh, lack of, of, of rainfall and overall uh, soil, excuse me, overall uh, total rainfall moisture content or, or levels are, are low where you're at. And I, I, you think about the arid states that don't get near the, nearly the rainfall that we're blessed with here in the Midwest. I completely understand it. Um, one final piece of the puzzle is um, obviously with those disturbances of soil and seeds germinating, you're dealing with application of herbicides. And in, honestly, in a no-till situation, you may have less frequent need the less frequent need for applying a herbicide to uh, to maintain uh, a clean site versus maybe a conventional tillage but with proper management and proper timing i really don't see that as being a deal breaker either way for a guy in, in my opinion the 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 the, the true uh, balance or, or one way for you to decide whether this is right for you or not Number one, let's be let's be honest with you with with ourselves rather than a, a no-till implement. Quite quite honestly, and quite more often than not, is much more expensive than the conventional pieces. Absolutely. Um, whether it be in, on single piece or if you're patching together and doing things the old-fashioned way with an old disc and you know an old field cultivator or a a, a rolling cultivator of your own. So that that cost up front is typically more. Um, but if, if cost is of no issue to you, I would just look at your, are you on an erodible site where rainfall on disturbed soil can wash your soil off? That's obviously a consideration. And are you dealing with um, the opportunity for every time you break open the soil to work it, you're losing a lot of soil moisture through sun and heat that are invaluable for you to be able to grow that crop. And if, if you answer yes to either one of those questions, then probably no-tilling is, is your best choice. If, if you're in a situation like myself here in the Midwest where we get plenty of rainfall, most of our plots are fairly level. I, we don't have to worry about it. Um, we, we do a lot of conventional planting still. And, and Tom, I'm, I've even heard of uh, certain situations where you have too much rain or too too uh, damp of soil, including this year and in, in, in our last year, I should say, 2019, where you could take that disc or, or tiller and expose some of that wet, damp soil to the sun, to the wind, and, and dry out if you got to get something in the ground. Um, so I, I definitely agree with you on pros and cons for both, for sure. There's no doubt about it. If you're a weekend warrior like most of us guys are, yes, sir. and you drive out to your farm and it's you got to rain on Wednesday, and you're scared to death, you, but you got to go. You drive out there on Friday <laughs> night, and Saturday morning you unload, 
and you go out to the field and gosh darn it, it's a little bit tacky on top, but you start running your disc through there and by the time you get to the other side of the field, you got a warm sunny day and some breeze blowing. By the time you go back for your second pass, that field, I mean, honestly, I, I know you guys have experienced this because I've done it hundreds of times. Oh, yeah. That you were like biting your fingernails thinking, oh, my gosh, it's almost it's almost too wet. I don't know if I can do this. But by the time you go back over that second pass, the good Lord has shined some sun on there and provided some wind, and that soil starts to break down perfectly, and you have just hit a home run. <laughs> yes, sir. You have just literally described um... – Brian and I both, and probably uh, a lot of our listeners. So, uh, yeah, we uh, we've been there, buddy, and and that's uh, you know, and, and I also like the point you mentioned about the the expense of of no till. While I get, can definitely see the benefits, I mean, there's not like a ton of no till drills just lying around every 40 acre corner of the field fence row, like there are a no. disc or a cultivator or everything else. So, I that's mean, right. I like no-till. I've done it, um, but I also use my disc on my ATV, too. So it's what I have. It's what I can afford, and it's what I work with. So I definitely uh, like the perspective of, of the pros and cons of each. So, Well, thanks. I, I just don't want people to get caught up in the mindset that it's got to be, you know, the new trend is going towards no-till. It's not a new trend whatsoever. It's been around for a long, long time. Yeah, You've just got to look at what best suits your needs and what your – able to afford and work with and and uh hey we've been doing food plots conventionally for a long long time and i've been doing and by the way the ferminator can be set up to do um a, a virtually a no-till type of a application of c2 with minimal disc angles and it, it doesn't have the drop tubes and specific seed rows but it can do a very very similar um, procedure of, of a very minimal intrusion to the soil but that that's i'm not trying to sell ferminators here i'm just trying to um, there's, there's guys that'll do whatever we, we got to do to get the seed in the ground. And sometimes it's, sometimes we try to overcomplicate it and it really is as simple as placing the seed into the soil at the right depth at the right time and giving it the nutrients that it, it needs. Right. And by golly, we can, we can grow some forages. That's, that's awesome. Um, and speaking of, of growing forages, you're, your 17-acre project, I've followed along on, you know, the the management advantage, uh, as does Brian. We know, we've talked to Casey on there. We know Eric. Um, you guys do a great job over there on that. Can you tell us about that project? Kind of maybe start out with what you had and what your idea was to transition into because the way I saw it, you had, like, a large crop field, corn or beans, whatever you want, in the middle of, timber in the middle of nowhere and i mean yes. that that sounds pretty good to most people but you took that it out does. of production so i kind of want to hear what your thoughts were there because uh i mean i'm in love with it, it sounds awesome well and, and you're right there was a quite a few responses that we got through the management advantage were, were questions of why in the world would you take 17 acres of food out of production to put it in more habitat and I'll be honest with you, it's it, it wasn't an overnight decision. Um, having owned the original piece next door for all you know that twenty some years, and having the opportunity to uh, purchase this adjoining acreage, even after I bought it, I still allowed the farmer to continue to farm that field um, 
you, you guys can imagine, I stood back and looked down into this field for years and years and years and years and dreamed about it. If, you know, what could you, what could you do with that if that was yours? And having the, you know, the, the luxury of having the education of design, um, that kind of, go, I go back to my landscape architecture experience. Um, I, and melding and molding that with wildlife habitat and, and functionality and understanding the way that deer moved across the property and where the ridges that they were coming down from bedding and where they like to feed and the corners that they came out on. And, and there were so many variables in my head swimming around that finally started to fall into place over a period of a couple of years. Even again, after I, I technically own this property and didn't want to jump right into it and just start willy-nilly, you know, throwing things in the ground. I wanted to really plan this out strategically so that it would make sense, and it was something that I was not going to regret doing this thing in that corner, you know, or, or why didn't I do this because of that, you know. So I, I tried to work all those things out in advance so that when the time came, I – I felt like I had a really, really solid plan that was going to be good now, 10 years from now, 15 years you know, from now, and so on. Um, so uh, and just so guys that might be listening for the first time that don't, don't really know much of the other background, in, in the original property that we bought in the timber, the 57 acres, I actually had cleared um, over from the original time to a timber harvest that we did in 2005, we have about four acres of food plots up in the timber and really secluded plots uh, it, broken into three areas. So, so they're about that, acre that was, piece. Well, there's a, a, a half acre piece, about eight tenths of an acre, and there's one that's about two and a half. Okay. And that, so yeah, just to give you an idea, so we we call them the. The camp plot, then there's the south plot, and then the north plot, and it's they're basically on two separate ridges. But nonetheless, I was able to actually grow quite a bit of good food in the timber um, over those years, and and we had some great hunts and great experiences there. So it's not like I was taking uh, a completely just solid block of timber and looking down into this lower field as in okay, let's wipe the slate clean and start over down there. I, I was taking those other acres of food that I had in the, in the timber into consideration about the design and the layout of the bottom field. So there was, again, it would probably take too much time from, and some maps to go over with you guys to say this is why I did this and that and the other. But to, just, just to, to bring it all together, food was still a really big critical part of the design of the 17 acre, we call it project 17. And um, there was one cove in the west end of the field that it's right at two acres. That's where a lot of the ridges dump down. A lot of the deer enter the field in that west end because of just the way that the, uh, the approach lies for them from their bedding areas. Um, but then there was also a couple other odd corners, little coves and a couple different ends of the field where they also had areas that they bedded in and would approach the field so those, to me, were automatically going to be marked off as, as um, ideal food plot spots. And the, um, the main outer ingredients beyond food was we, we really, in that part of the, of the county, lack 
um, any shrubby old field style habitat. Uh, everything's either tillable field or it's mature timber or vast, you know, nearly mature timber. So rather than just letting part of the field just go back into reclaiming and starting its, its process back into old field habitat, I decided to choose, um, scrubby oak species trees and wanted to, the center piece of the field was uh, 10 foot wide tree planting spacing rows of uh, hardwood, mostly all oak species that would hold leaves late um, and eventually would be mass producing and also some timber value at some point in time in the future that my daughters or my grandchildren might be able to enjoy. But I, if, if, if hopefully people will maybe take the time to go back and watch the, the episodes because there's some drawings and then I explain the layout. But the centerpiece of the farm was the, the hardwood tree plantings, and we planted them right into the corn stubble with a pull-behind tree planter, two guys sitting on a machine and dropping in, you know, two- and three-foot-tall oak sapling whips into the, into the field, into the rows. And then there's right outside of the tree planting is a 15- um, to 16-foot-wide clover buffer strip planted around that, and then just outside of that on either side is seven acres of big blue stem Indian grass and Swiss oh, grass, man. warm season plantings outside of that. that is awesome. And then outside of, outside of the warm season grasses is, is yet another 16 foot wide strip of clover all the way around the field. So the clover strips were intended for fire breaks. They're also intended for food, of course, but they're also sneaking trails to be able to walk around the, inside the different layers of this project to access different parts of the field. But um, I took the idea of, of, of access trails, food plots, and places for the fire to stop safely and not harm my trees when I was to right. burn the grasses and incorporated that all together. And... Lo and behold, I think I ended up with about five acres worth of clover in just in roads. If you add up all the lineal footage times the width of the, of the clover, we ended up with about five acres of clover. There's seven and a half acres of warm season grasses. There is just over five acres in hardwood tree plantings in the middle that will eventually be a scrubby little thicket, you know, of, of leafy, brushy oak trees um, that I can't wait to see get to that stage. And then food in the various corners of the of the uh, in the irregular little coves off to the sides, with the large cove at the main west end being, well, it was planted in soybeans this first season, and I'll be putting, and of course I left those stand, and the uh, this year it will be planted in corn, and that will be left to stand, and the other two irregular corner plots were planted in. Um, fall annuals of a cereal grain and brassica and, you know, uh, greens and grains to kind of a mix. Um, so you've got, I'm sorry to keep talking. There's a lot, a lot in my head swimming around, but no, you're good. All you're the, the, the perennial forage of the, of the clover and chicory roads, the grains of the um, warm season annuals of the corn and soybeans, and then you've got your, your cool season annual mix. So you really have all your bases covered there. And uh, it, it's, it's really tremendous what it did this year. It just attracted and held a lot of deer, even before. I mean, the, 
the warm season grasses got four and five feet tall for their first year growth, which I was absolutely thrilled with. Of course, they'll get bigger in diameter and more dense and taller yet the next year or two. And as those trees begin to start to show some shape and create some additional cover in the middle of the project, it's going to just, um, I'm just excited for the next, you know, the next foreseeable future. Every year is going to get bigger and better for it, for that whole thing. Well, I, I hunted in Iowa this past fall, and I hunted next to a field that reminds me a lot of what you made in your White Shell Haven. And I tell you what, it was epic. So I really was excited. <laughs> I followed your videos before um, I hunted Iowa, obviously. You know, these videos came out earlier in, in the year in, I think, 19. So I was, I was you know, aware of your project. But when I saw it, kind of in action with those scrub oaks, all planted in lines, you know, 10-foot rows in the CRP or the, the switch or the big blue stem all around there, I mean, it was... It was insane. So I really know that you're going to like what this turns into, as I'm sure you already know. But uh, it's just pretty amazing. And for those who don't know, you guys can check out uh, Creating a Whitetail Haven on the Management Advantage website or YouTube. And that's Tom's video. He's got two of them on there. Right, Tom? I think there's actually three phases that we filmed last year from Okay. Um, yeah. Between, between the initial planting of the, of the trees... And then going back in and doing the uh, warm season grasses and, and planting the food, it, it was broken into three different segments last year. I'll have to find that third one. I missed it. Well, Tom, I have a question about the uh, oak uh, rows of trees there. How, how do you plan on controlling the weeds and the competition amongst those? Yeah, that's that's a super good question, and I, that that was something that I gave a lot of thought to. Um, believe it or not, I ended up rather than just having leaving the crop residue um, just sort of return to normal or native native vegetation, I went ahead and planted all of the rows in between the trees in the same clover and chicory strips. And my rationale there was, um, first of all, I just wanted to I, I wanted to suppress weeds. And I wanted to give my trees enough sunlight and energy to do what they want, what, what they could do to hopefully establish quicker. But, and I got to be honest with you guys, this was some somewhat of a moving experiment for me was to see if I could overwhelm the deer with so much food that my tree, my new trees would experience less, um, less pressure on, right. on them. And, and, you know, I, I really believe that it, it did help a lot. I do know that the only weeds that are on on the property are in that one foot width of the tree row itself. So then you've got a, a nice 10 foot wide clover strip to the next row. Um, so the trees were getting plenty of sunlight around them from either side. Um, and I, I will say that I did I did get some damage from deer browsing on my trees, but I think it was much, much less than it would have been had I not had just so much food out there available for them. Okay. So are you, you yeah. kind of like mowing along those to keep the competition down or using uh, cleft or grass-specific or anything like that? What I did last year for the first season was just I mowed, it, I mowed them one time in the middle of the summer 
uh, as far as between the trees, and I let it go. So I did get I did get a little bit of um, you know year end flush of weeds that kind of grew up, but nothing that was overcrowding or out competing the uh, the clover and chicory. So I I my rationale is I know at some point in time as the trees begin to reach out branches and start to to, to become more and more shady in there. There, I will give that up. I'm just going to let that go and revert back to whatever whatever God let, wants to happen in there. You know, whatever seeds are in that bank, I will let that happen. But until that time, I'm going to run a tractor down through there with a bush hog maybe once a year, maybe twice a year, depending on rainfall and growth. Right, and, right. And, and um, with my... With with my eye on that, just knowing that I, I want to keep that as a, a green cover crop, sort of a suppressor, plus food in there between the trees. And uh, at some point in time, when the shade begins to dictate that we need to do otherwise, I'll I'll pull the plug and I won't I won't worry about mowing between those anymore. So Tom, overall, are you glad that you're taking this 17 acre secluded? corn or bean field in the middle of the timber out of production and, and, you know, spending all this time and blood, sweat, and tears getting it to, to where it needs to be? Or, or what are you thinking at this point? 100%. Yeah. I mean, I it's been such a uh, just a great deal of satisfaction what I've seen happen already with that and just having my hand involved in manipulating the land to see the wildlife respond the way that it has has just been tremendous. I will say, too, guys, that I, I feel like our part of the county, uh, the deer density there is not so tremendous that I'm, I'm robbing deer from I'm, – I'm taking – I'm cleaning the plate and not providing enough food for the deer. I don't think that's a, the case at all for me. Um, that was one of those – Again, variables that went into my decision making was that I, I certainly felt like the food that I was going to still be able to provide was going to feed the mouth that we had to feed. And um, I just felt like the introduction of some of the missing habitat components that are not found in my area, and by that I mean the, the warm season grasses, the native stands, and the brushy habitat is going to attract and hold, you know, I hate to be selfish, but more mature bucks. That's that's kind of like uh, <laughs> what a lot of us are really after. You're being honest. Uh, what you're oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. yeah. All right, Tom. Thanks for that description on the 17-acre White Tail Haven or Heaven, depending on what you want to call it. There. Um, I kind of wanted to ask you what what are you up to today in the habitat woods? You know, it's it's uh, about spring, or it actually is spring now. What have you been up to now? Well, today, um, so besides doing some things for my my own, you know, on my own property, I do have some friends and clientele that I've developed over the years that I actually do some consulting work for and and, and still continue to do some hands-on installation and, and follow-up maintenance uh, for some, some good friends and, and clientele. So today I'm actually about an hour uh, east of where I live, uh, I left, I was able to take off this afternoon from work and capitalize on the fact that we had two dry days here back-to-back, um, which honestly right now is the time 
at least for us here in central Indiana, for burning our warm season grass stands and doing some controlled burning. Um, anywhere from the third week of March to about the third or fourth week of April is really prime time for that. And we kind of watch some natural indicators to know when it, the absolute perfect, perfect spot is. But that's a good range uh, to shoot for. Uh, unfortunately, I, one, one of my best friends and, and a client of mine, I, I planted back in 2016. I, I helped him convert 55 acres of top fields on a 640-acre farm um, surrounded by timber, took 55 acres out of row crop production and put them into a conservation reserve program. Um, and, and basically it's a, it's a quail program. So there's a lot of shorter grasses in it, a lot of forbs and wildflowers. And this was the first year that the contract was allowing him to be able to do a, the first prescribed burn. And we tried to set this up last weekend to be able to, to do it. And wouldn't you know, it rained all Friday and, and Saturday looked dismal and 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 so just the the forecast was was not good but we had a beautiful day yesterday here in, in central indiana and today broke off great a couple of days of some wind and some sun and i was able to sh- uh, shuffle my schedule around a little bit today and headed over here and, and rallied some troops and some friends and we came over here and uh, we we burned about 80 percent of this 55 acres this afternoon and i'm um, sitting in my truck right now with um, with some glowing embers in my rearview mirror in, a, in the middle of one little tiny spot in the field that I'm going to go check before we call it a night, but pretty successful. And, and honestly, the wind, excuse me, the rain was supposed to set in here around 7:30 tonight, and it and it ended up bypassing us completely. So right. as of right now, no no rain. We were able to get a lot of, a lot of uh, burning done. And it's just one of those things when you got, you know, the, as as the old farmers say, make hay while the sun's shining. Well. If you've got a moment and an opportunity and you have the time, jump on it and get it done because these weeks are passing by quickly. And before you know it, uh, spring green up is here and it's almost going to be too late to burn. Um, and, and the timing of burning warm season grasses is really critical because if you do it at the right time, you're suppressing cool season competition, but doing it before the warm season grasses are coming out of dormancy. And there's some really good trade off benefits by doing and, uh, you know, doing it at the right time. And uh, so I'm, I still help clients. I, I design some things for different people, and I, I do some custom planting, and and not as much as I used to with my, my new career at Basecamp Country Real Estate. As the national sales manager, I find myself sitting in an office a lot more than I have my entire life, but which is a, I enjoy it. Uh, and I've been building a team of great guys there, and we're, we're watching that company grow and flourish. So I still have the liberty of doing my habitat things on the weekends and evenings, which I enjoy greatly. That's awesome. Um, I've always been a little excited and apprehensive to, to try a burn. How dry does it have to be? I mean, does a drip torch take care of something if it's a little bit damp or, or how dry or what are the conditions you're looking for? That's, that's a great, great question. And a, a lot of it just comes with experience and, um, Soil moisture plays a big part of it. If it's just we've had a lot of rain here lately, and it's not something that you can expect to go out on the, that same day after a rain quits or even sometimes the following day, but you're looking for the right percentage of humidity, a wind speed of about 11 miles an hour or less. But I can go out in, in my yard 
almost and look at uh, the conditions and my landscaping, and I, you know, I, I can see how how the soil is drying with some sun and wind wind on it, and I and I know this farm intimately here where I'm working tonight, and I know the ridges are the fields are all on the top, so they drain well. Uh, there's not pockets of water standing like if we were in a lower field, so it's really a case by case basis. But if as long as the grasses are still standing fairly erect and not laying down on on the soil where they're just going to sit there and act like a sponge and pull up water from the ground. If they're up off the ground and has some oh, air circulating okay. whatsoever, then it really takes a, just a good day with some sun and some wind, some light breeze on those grass tops to be able to dry them out where they will sustain a burn and move a fire through. Uh, but if it's if it's all laying down and and the soil's wet and soppy and and the, those grasses are soaking that water in, you're going to be very frustrated trying to burn that. So, again, case by case. But I knew this place well, and I I could just imagine it was going to be uh, pretty much ready for for what we tried to do today. So that rain that you were hoping for, or maybe not hoping for, was that advantageous to knock out the embers, or were you hoping that it keeps kind of burning and, and smoldering throughout the night? Well, this this farm, I actually did did the design on this back in 2015, so it's set up very similar to, to as far as the burning buffers around this farm like I did my own. So there's clover breaks around this entire farm, well separated from the timber lines to the to the grasses. So, and, and my landowner buddy has done a fantastic job of keeping those mowed and maintained and healthy. So you've got a great green break between, um, you know, the, the, the edge of the grass, you know, 30 feet or so from the timber line. And the gra- right now the timber here is extremely moist. All the leaves are wet in the timber. So uh, it's, it's really a safe time right here to be burning. And our, honestly, our, our hopes were that the rain would hold off and allow us to just to get into uh, sunset, which at that time the air starts to the humidity starts to build and moisture starts to like seep up from the ground back up into the grasses and, and it starts to slow you down and pretty much puts a stop to to you um, on, at least in a damp situation. When I say damp, just the overall conditions for the last couple of weeks here have been damp. So um, we were just hoping to be able to burn till dark, which we did, and I got about 80 percent of the 55 acres burned. So um, it won't take much to, to wrap this thing up in the next couple of days. If the rain holds off, they could actually finish this tomorrow without my help. Um, awesome. But it's, it's again, uh, from 2016 till now, this will be the first burn on this farm. And um, he's excited to see what's going to happen with these grasses and these forbs and wildflowers just flourishing and coming back to life and doing very well as a result of the release of the nutrients and exposure to the sunlight that this burn did for him. No, that sounds exciting, and I'm sure the landowner is thrilled that you guys got, you know, 85% of that done today. I mean, I know I would be. Um, and I know you're not quite done working yet today, so I want to be respectful of your time, and I know we're going to get you back on here to finish our content because we have plenty more to get through. So, um, I would love that. Let's uh, let's wrap this up, Tom. Anything um, you want to direct the listeners to before we uh, hang up here tonight? Yeah, if you're not privy to to the management advantage, uh, I've been a part of that team since my goodness, probably back around 2002 or three, 
and the management advantage is now all digital. It's a, it's a series that, that a, a show is produced every couple of weeks. There's a YouTube channel for it, and there's also just the, the good old website. It's themanagementadvantage.com. And I've been a contributing member of that team, as I said, since the early 2000s. It was founded by Chuck Sykes, a wildlife biologist. And Chuck is actually the uh, um, the head of the, uh, the Division of Fish and Wildlife in the state of Alabama right now. Uh, Chuck and I go way back. Um, but everything you'll find there is is hopefully – uh, information to help you understand and teach you how to better manage your property, whether it be warm season grasses, uh, food plots, timber stand improvement or management, um, predator trapping. There's a lot of great content on there with one of my partners, Casey Shootman, is a very avid trapper, and there's a lot of that's one of our most popular um, bits of uh, of the show is is the, the the predator trapping information, but all the way up to deer sensing and um, camera surveys, uh, pine plantation. I mean, there's a little bit of everything for anybody wherever you're at in the country. Uh, if you're actively managing your property, I would highly encourage you to go check it out. And as you guys mentioned, uh, my my pet project of uh, Project 17 was highlighted through the installation process of, of last season starting about this time last year. Um, and you guys have done, a, done an amazing job with that web series. I think some of your videos have over a million views. That's that's impressive how many people you're reaching. It's quite it's kinda of humbling really to see that. And you know, um there's no egos, there's no agendas here. It's just all fun and everybody enjoys um teaching and you know, I'm fifty three or fifty four I losing count years old and <laughs> um <laughs> I'm I'm happy to share with you guys what, what I've tried and what's worked for me. Um, I don't, I'm not selling anything. I'm not trying to promote anything. I just, I, I love sharing information and I, I, I just love the network of people in this, in this community of wildlife and, and whitetail nuts that love to manage lands, you know, and grow bigger and better deer and healthy deer and to share it with our kids and family. And it's just, uh, it's just a wonderful, a wonderful community of people. Yeah, that, that's what makes it so relatable, I think, to so many people is you guys are just regular guys like us trying to share and, and have a good time with it. Absolutely. I, I think that's really um, – if, if one of the common things that I hear is like, hey, we just like the way you guys act, you know, that we just – we appreciate you sharing it. It's not, not like you're know-it-alls or anything like that. You're just showing you what showing us what's worked for you. It's not always the, the absolute have to do it this way, but it's certainly a way that's that's worked. And um, we, that's the way we try to present it. And if I may, guys, um, I am, again, the national sales manager for Basecamp Country Real Estate. I was with Whitetail Properties for six years as the East Central Indiana land specialist, and I was approached with the opportunity to come work for Steve Mang, who owns Basecamp Leasing, and to start a division of recreational uh, and farm hunting, excuse me, farm, timber, and hunting land uh, properties. And, and parlaying off our sister company, Basecamp Leasing. And uh, about a year ago, April, I, I accepted that position and came over to work for Steve here in Indiana. And we've been building a team. We're in about six states right now and actively growing. So basecampcountry.com is our website there if you ever want to check out some of the properties that we have for sale. Um, and we also are trying to provide some great content there and parlaying off 
of my relationship with the management advantage and also into base camp country and sharing some of that good content back and forth. And I think it all, it all fits together in a really nice family setting. Yeah, that, that's a great partnership. Uh, besides the 40 acres that I own, I lease uh, 311 acres through base camp down in Carroll County, Ohio. So great people that's to awesome. deal with. 20 years in the business. Steve had a very good mindset to start that company back at the time when he moved here from Kansas and hunting ground was hard to find without knocking on doors. If you got turned down, there was really no other option. And uh, so it's been a, it's been a great run for Steve and, and we just feel like the, the real estate division is just a great complement to that, that company that he started back then. That sounds great. Well, Tom, we appreciate you coming on. We'll let you get back to that fire and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. I enjoy it, guys. Thanks for having me on tonight. Hey, thanks again, Tom. We will be in touch soon. Uh, take care and uh, be safe out there. I appreciate it, guys. You as well. Wow, guys. What an episode with Tom, James, and Brian there. I really enjoyed that one, and we did not fit it all in one episode. So we're going to have Tom back for a part two. Be sure to stay tuned for that, guys. We have a lot more good stuff to cover uh, in our next episode with Tom. I really want to thank you guys, the listeners, for coming on here once again and following along with the Habitat Podcast. All we're trying to do is become better habitat managers. I know we talk a lot about deer, but with improving your habitat for deer, you automatically are improving your habitat for many other species. We're also going to be talking about turkey habitat coming up soon, some more pond management, and so on. So uh, hang in there. We will hopefully cover the subject that you are interested in. And if not, please let us know. I'd like to thank uh, Tom once again for coming on. That was an awesome episode. Um, I'd also like to thank our sponsors of the Habitat Podcast. We have Packer Max Cult of Packers, HuntWise Hunting App, 5-2 Outdoors, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, The Habitat Hook, Killer Food Plots, and Morse Nurseries. And everybody, if you are new to the podcast, please check us out at HabitatPodcast.com. We have all of our brand new hats up there, some shirts, all the podcast episodes are up there, uh, even some information on our digital land plans and consultations or the boots on the ground tour version of our land plans. That's all at HabitatPodcast.com. If you're not on there, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, hopefully Pandora soon. We're working on it all, guys. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in. Once again, we really appreciate you as we're here becoming better habitat managers. 